welcome to the Moral Minority Show. My name is Joshua Luckett, and I am your co-host. And for the first time in a while, I'm actually not joined by my uh, fellow co-host, Kennedy Curley. Uh, he is, we both work nine to fives, just don't pay the bills. And so he is doing his thing, getting his job done. Uh, he'll jump right back on our next episode that we've got ready to go with a good friend of mine that I'm really excited about. But on this episode, um, we are in the midst of Disability Pride Month, and we still have a week to go. And so Nikki Thompson, who is now on her third straight episode because her <laughs> patriarch and husband uh, was a stand-in for her last time uh, on the hip-hop episode, uh, brought along her friend, um, who is not only uh, experientially knowledgeable about the subject, but also has gone to school um, in the uh, in this field, I guess is the best way to say it. And um, and so, well, real quick, Nikki, say hey. Hey. <laughs> and then uh, and then Maddie uh, Snow, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and just wanted to start by just give the, give the audience a little, uh, introduction since mine was so bad. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was not. Um, yeah, I'm Maddie Snow Gould. I, um, my experience with disability first and foremost is as a disabled woman. So I have a connective tissue disease called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, that manifests as widespread chronic pain, uh, chronic fatigue, um, joint instability, so a lot of dislocation and acute injury, um, and then a couple of other diagnoses. Um, so I have been sick in that way since I was about 16, um, but I have some prior diagnoses um, and have really been chronically ill since I was about four years old. And so all of my formative um, experiences around identity have happened as a sick person, as a disabled woman. Um, And then also personally, I worked um, at Camp Barnabas in the summer of 2019, which is an adaptive summer camp for kids and adults with disabilities. Um, And a lot of that work um, for me, involved um, physical caretaking, and so I um, sort of in this really dynamic time of understanding my own identity as a disabled woman also had really interesting experiences on um, not the other side of things, but in a different way as a caretaker. Um, and then professionally, I um, graduated from Baylor with my bachelor's of social work. And while I was at Baylor, um, spent some time um, in courses around disability theology, not a ton, but um, every time I had the opportunity, really sought that out. And then um, in my coursework, I focused on uh, macro social work. So instead of clinical social work, um, it's more community. So I'm super professionally interested in community organizing around disability rights issues um, and policy writing. Um, And I kind of 
started getting my sea legs with that while I was still an undergrad and um, organized a couple of protests on campus um, and wrote some petitions um, and really started to engage with disability rights as um, sort of, I don't know, from more of an organizing perspective. Um, and I'm not, I'm still very young and I'm not an expert by any means, but um, there really is not a part of my life in the last five years that has not been um, consumed by disability in one aspect or another. And I have loved that. Well, my goodness, we're getting a treat. Um, that was, that was, that was, that, that was obviously a lot of life experience and a lot of different things that you've tapped into that's going to make, um, your thoughts on this incredibly thoughtful and incredibly potent. So, um, super excited about that. Um, it, uh, this, this month is competing with another, uh, holiday type of, uh, or, uh, awareness month as we, as I should say. Uh, I think it's like Patriots Month. They tried to make Patriots Month. Uh, that's as you know, our friends on the on the far right uh, would like for this to be a month where we um, remember uh, patriotism. Um, and so that is a perfect segue into the first uh, thing that I want to discuss is uh, in in lieu of celebrating. Uh, I, I think it's Patriots Month. I'll, I'll I'll look that up for sure when we're done. Um, but in lieu of celebrating that, um, either one of you can jump in here first. Why is, what is the urgency in us focusing specifically on the, the disabled community? What are some of the things that, uh, are kind of being experienced in not only kind of the passive, like soft aspects of society where it's like just no accommodation, but even like maybe even particular things like um, particular new pieces of legislation or even like particular new waves of neglect for this community that makes um, this conversation urgent and makes uh, this month um, obviously can, how does it continue to be super important? Yeah, um, well, I think there's probably, um, no part of patriotism I identify with more than, um, <laughs> to, to say the least, um, than working to make, if we're speaking of our country as a community on like a really grand scale, um, then I, I think there's no better way to be a patriot than to want that community to be better and more accessible, more inclusive. And so, um, yeah, I think there's, which this country certainly is not for people with disabilities. Um, and I think like there's, I love that you differentiate between um, more of the experience of ableism in um, cultural biases and in language and um, in seeking accommodations and things like that and like legislatively or like in a policy framework because that is really what um drew me to more of a macro um bent in social work but um yeah as far as rights for people with disabilities um people with disabilities still don't have marriage equality so if you're receiving um, social security disability insurance, which a lot of people shorthand to just disability, 
um, which is really broadly misunderstood in the culture. I was like, okay, if you can't work, then the government pays you like a stipend each month to cover your needs um, and establish the quality of life. Nikki is laughing. Sorry. (laughs) We do that. We do that at my job. Like we like help people who are unhoused or like low income, like get access to their um, benefits. And they're just, it's laughable. It's like, you think the minimum wage hasn't been increased? Like, you know, it's just a laughable scale. Like, I don't know how, I mean, I know for a fact people cannot live on disability. Yeah, a hundred percent. I was, yeah, about to bring up that it hasn't been adjusted to cost of living in a crazy number of years that I can't remember off the top of my head. But if you're receiving SSDI, you can't accrue more than $2,000 worth of assets. You can't, um, get married and you can't, um, there's one other, there's one other, it's like a three prong problem, but, um, you can't, you can't get married to a partner, um, disabled or not. And so, um, like there is no space for people with disabilities who depend on that, um, often in a way that's connected to Medicaid. So in an essential way, um, to save up to buy a house or to save up in case of emergencies um, or to marry they, the people that they love. And there are um, people doing great work in those spaces. Um, and then off the top of my head, there's also um, a loophole in FDR era legislation, um, New Deal era legislation, um, in some of the labor laws that allow people with disabilities to be paid sub minimum wage um, as low as 40 cents. And so um, Goodwill Industries, the thrift store, is one of those corporations that hires people with disabilities through that loophole. And so, um, and it varies store to store, but there are documented instances of Goodwill paying their, um, particularly employees with intellectual disabilities. Um, below minimum wage, which is already not livable. Um, And there are, you know, there are, there's plenty of legislation right now in our country being introduced and passed that threatens bodily autonomy of all kinds. And that is always going to disproportionately affect people with disabilities. Um, It was not very long ago that um, people with disabilities were being forcibly sterilized, were being um, institutionalized and, um, we, and that those policies were being upheld by legislative bodies like the Supreme court. And so, um, there have been very minimal steps made towards protecting bodily autonomy in the last 40, 50 years. And as those things begin to be rolled back, um, a lot of people in the disability community have a very valid fear of, um, what they'll be able to control about their own lives and bodies. And so, um, yeah, there's really, we could do the whole podcast on Mm. what's up (laughs) policy-wise and affecting people's disabilities. But off the top of my head, those are some some big parts of the disability rights conversation right now. Yeah, Nikki, I'm going to ask you as well why why this conversation should be urgent for most people, uh, in your opinion. But Everything that you just said has flown under the radar of like 90% of Americans, like yeah. 100, you know what I mean? It, it's just yeah. like, it, it, that is amazing. So many things that are harmfully 
um, either like intentionally affecting uh, this community or kind of like just the natural default of the way that we've structured our society. And like it, that, that is why a month like this is so important to make awareness for all of those things um, because those are having daily effects upon yeah. so many Americans. Um, and so, yeah, wow, that's just, that's, it, it, it was just amazing listening to that and just being like, you know, I consume a pretty good bit of political commentary on a daily basis. It's a, it's a personal hobby and passion of mine. And I mean, so much of that doesn't come up ever, ever. Yeah. So, so, so much of that was new for, for even me, you know, as someone who feels like I try to be decently informed. And so imagine the everyday nine to five American and, mm -hmm how much of that is just completely missing um, their radar. And so, yeah, Nikki, what, what, are, uh, what are some reasons why you think um, we should have some urgency in making uh, this conversation, in making awareness around this conversation? Um, I feel like we are all in agreement that it's important because people have inherent value. <laughs> Duh. Right. Obviously. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. But I think I think you are you both kind of already hit on it. But the first thing that I thought of was like, so I don't remember what year it was. A few years ago, Maddie wrote a piece for an orthodoxy um, called "Our Forgotten Minority" about kind of like some of the things we're going to touch on today. It's now up on her Substack, funnybody.substack.com. I think is correct. If only y'all <laughs> could see the faces that were being made as uh, Dick was saying that. But I just, I remember, like, the first time I read that title, like, that just kind of really hit. Because, again, like, Josh, like, I felt like, okay, I'm pretty aware. Like, I do my best to, like, know what's going on. But I really do feel like, like, the disabled community is something that is, like, so swept under the rug. Like, we just, I mean, you don't know these things unless you, like, are in places that, you know, like, I know about, you know, disability benefits because of the work that I do. But before then... I had no idea. Um, so I think I tend to think, okay, anything, not in like a tinfoil hat kind of QAnon way, but I'm like, <laughs> if people are trying to get me not to pay attention to this, like maybe I should, you know? Um, so You're not I just going to drop that bar and then just keep going. <laughs> My bad, go ahead. <laughs> I do, yeah. So I think that for that reason, um, and I think like something that keeps coming to mind is like, when we do things like limit the amount of income someone can, you know, receive when they're on benefits or limit, like, things they can do to, like, improve their lives or the amount of assets they can have, it's like you're creating a permanent underclass. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's happening, like, to the disabled community. I think that's been happening to them, to the black community. Like, I think that's just, like, is how America is set up. That's just, like, what capitalism has been here. Um, and I think that is really disgusting and horrible and so definitely needs to be talked about in a way that it is not normally. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think in 2020 there was this big push for people to think about like systems and systemic injustice and inequality, but I don't think that people really actually know what that looks like. And it looks like things like this that like limit what you can do in source benefits or, you know, that like allow people to get paid below minimum wage and I mean I think that affects everybody so hmm. I think it's important 
yeah yeah i i love i love just the baseline like obvious um thing that you started with nikki of just like humans are involved therefore (laughs) degree degree of uh priority rises right um and i i think that's you know why i i jokingly brought up patriots month i mean what you know like what a useless definition it even has anyway i i think one of the things that um that I am so critical of uh, a lot of our uh, right-wing um, neighbors here in America, particularly people who are kind of far right, is you know the 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 richness of their their constant like oh I want to be a patriot I want to be a great American and I'm just like you don't like America like America is very multicolored America is very gay america is very black america is very hispanic america is very um, america is filled with people um, from the dead stable community america is very jewish very asian uh, it has a lot of undocumented people it has a lot of people from the middle east like it we are everyone's here and so and all of these cultures are constantly um, being pervasive in american society and having so much impact and um and uh and and adding so much flavor and richness to the american experience that it's like to be like either opposed or to kind of treat all those um aspects of america as kind of like extremities and not like the core of who we are as a country is genuinely to just be anti-american and so to uh, to, like, like the idea, of course, behind uh, whatever the hell it is, Patriots Month, uh, was obviously to like counter last month with it being Pride Month around um, around the queer community. Um, and they had no idea they were stepping on uh, a month uh, for a group that, quite frankly, has consistently been overlooked um in this country and so that the irony there is is just it's yeah amazing but uh we're we're gonna dig into theology which i'm I'm excited about uh here in a bit but maddie um you mentioned a couple of uh protests that you were involved in uh was it at baylor yeah um so really so the first um was more of like a petition situation um i just assumed you wanted to hear about them and sort of tell you is that that's exactly yeah you you stepped in exactly when i was about to stop we're great Um, and can i just interject each petition that i signed and just say hey i was there just for the record she said we and we both and i think we all like to sing um yeah, the first was during, I was still, um, I am high risk for COVID. And so during the worst of the pandemic, I was back home with my parents um, in sort of like a 12-month like quarantine situation. Very glamorous. And I was a remote student. And so um, I wasn't on campus for this. And um, the Office of Access and Learning Accommodations um at Baylor, which is the disability, the student disability office. Um, They um, have this program, um, the shuttle program, um, and it's the only, to my knowledge at that time, was the only program that Baylor offered to disabled students above what they were legally required. 
Um, and there could have been things I don't know about, but as far as I know, it was the only sort of like extra accommodation service. And so, um, students would drive golf carts and pick up disabled students, um, from their dorms and take them from class to class and then drop them off at ramps, um, near buildings. And it was helpful for students with long-term conditions. And also for like, I had a couple of friends who would, who wound up like breaking their foot sophomore year and would sign up for the shuttle and be shuttled around. Um, cause Bailey is a big campus and there's just no way to get around. Um, especially when it gets hot without, um, there's no way to get around safely. Um, and so Ola dismantled that program. Um, and I, I am signed up for that, even though I wasn't on campus and I found out from an article in our student paper and then they sent sort of like a cursory email to everybody, um, who was signed up for the service. And it was like a day of notice kind of thing. And it was super, it was super sketchy and incredibly, um, in my opinion, disrespectful. Um, and so I wrote a petition and we received, um, I think, and maybe mm, these numbers are fake. It's been a long time. I think we received around 2000 signatures and there was a form email that I wrote that people could copy and paste their information into and send. Um, and then I identified some people in admin and at Ola who um, might be moved by receiving that email to change the policy. And so um, there were four emails and a petition um, and a lot of the student clubs um, drew attention to it, particularly um, a, a lot of the black student clubs um, worked really hard um, in that and student government got involved. And in about 72 hours they reversed the policy and put the golf carts back on campus um and that was the first time I'd ever like done anything like that and it was incredibly empowering and even still like when I would be on campus up to senior year and I would pass a golf cart it would just I it was an incredibly gratifying feeling um to know that there had been like a communal effort by Baylor students um to push for access for students who would need it um, and then the second um, was in winter of 2022, um, January of 2022, um, there was a really aggressive wave of COVID right after, like during and after winter break. Um, and so people came back to campus and the campus numbers were spiking. Um, and at that time, Baylor dismantled two of their helpful COVID policies that protected high-risk students. And one of them was the attendance policy, um, which is ableist anytime throughout any kind of public health situation um, and is always a problem for disabled students, but particularly when um, students were having to return to class um, before they might be well, students would have to return to class before um, they received tests or knew what their COVID status was. Um, and that was less, there was a petition. Um, and then I sat outside of our school administrative building, um, for two or three weeks and, um, with a sign and it was more, um, more, that was more of a symbolic protest and less about, um, 
just just more about um, symbolically being visible to administration because it was so easy throughout that entire pandemic and still now um, to pretend like high risk um, in the context of COVID or just disabled students generally are such a minority and are not um, a significant enough part of the student population um, to care about retaining or um, to care about the quality of their Baylor experience. Um, And so uh, that was not successful. They didn't reinstate the policies, which was not surprising, um, but still felt important as a protest action to take up space in in an important part of campus and be visible um, as a disabled student to people who had power to protect people like me and chose not to. Um, and so those were the two big, um, like organizing things, I guess I was involved in in undergrad. No, that's, um, thank you so much for, uh, one for stepping into those. I mean, that's just important. Um, and, 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 you know, using your, not only your, um, strategy, but even your, your physical body, um, to, to, you know, to be a symbol, but, um, it, if, uh, if there, what are like, so when I think about like broadly, like, uh, okay. So when I think about particularly the African American community, there's about two or three, like kind of massive, you know, legislative policies that I'm like, these have been proposed by, you know, academic think tanks by, by great social movers, like, you know, if we really want to address police brutality, like there was the big like defund the police movement and just like the well thought out like idea of like reallocating funds to um, spaces that would actually do community development and enrichment um, and, and not make like, you know, an authoritarian police state that was, you know, exacerbating crime more than it was, you know, decreasing it. Um, you know, like there was like an, a specific, you know, uh, you know, deal with mass incarceration and like there's a million policies under that umbrella of how to, how to deal with that. But we, you know, there was these specific things that like, man, we know for a fact that this community is heavily dealing with blank, blank, blank. And these are the things that um, I can be conscious about as a voter and, and, and as an advocate, you know, within whether local, state, federal, national you know, level. Um, you know, before we dig into theology, what, what, are, what are some material like um, policies that if I'm, if I'm wanting to st- come alongside um, mm-hmm. the disabled community, uh, how could I, um, how, yeah, what are, what are policies that I need to be looking out for and aware of to fight for? Mm, that's a really thoughtful question. That's a great question. Um, there are a lot of um, advocacy organizations um, that at um, and the I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So let me look it up really quick. This is what so many podcasts um, should do. Do your homework before. This is what so many podcasts should do. Homework before you speak. Yeah. I, get, <laughs> I get in the heat of battle and then I'm saying all my acronyms wrong and then I listen to it back and I'm like, okay, well, that's not. <laughs> if anybody knows what's going on and hears this, they're going to know that I don't know what's going on. Um, so, um, sorry, this, <laughs> she's freezing on me. Um, but AAPD <laughs> is 
is um first of all a dream job so call me if anybody's listening um (laughs) but um a national disability-led disability rights organization that does incredible interdisciplinary work um that makes intentional organizational moves to um specifically center people of color in their work um and the queer community in their work um and there are state chapters and um not so much in texas but i do think that there are regional chapters um and they a lot of times i know about specific policies in the texas house for example because i follow um them on twitter or i'm connected to a mailing list and so um, as far as policy, that's a great resource, um, and that's the AAPD, um, and a lot of sort of giants of civil rights work and disability um, were involved in the founding of that and still work in capacity. Um, I think anything with healthcare is huge, which is an incredibly general statement and still the understatement of the century Mm -hmm. um and a big when the uh, there's just been so much organizing by the disability community around um universal health care or even um establishing medicare and medicaid as programs um that was work um done I don't want to say almost entirely because that overstates it, but done in huge part by disability rights activists. Um, the reason pre-existing conditions legally must be covered by um, insurance companies is because a group of disabled people, mostly in wheelchairs, occupied Mitch McConnell's office in 2015 or 2016 um, and were dragged out by police in their wheelchairs um, and protested for months and months and months to make sure that that was a part of that legislation. Um, But anything with healthcare obviously is huge. Um, Education is another thing. Um, Accessible housing. These are all, I know these are all really broad, um, but it's, they, they're broad because there's almost nothing protecting disabled people from um, unfair, unjust outcomes in those realms and um, even in regards to the Americans with Disabilities Act which is the only civil rights legislation protecting people with disabilities in this country and it was passed in the 90s and so um, even when things are illegal explicitly under um, the ADA which a lot of the ADA is um, understood legally to be like implicit protection and a lot of it is up to has been judged by the courts as up to the understanding of employers or landlords or hospitals or whatever which is not how i read it obviously but (laughs) is an option um a lot of the things that are explicitly illegal are still still happen all the time Um, every day, especially in regards to fair and accessible housing, Um, in regards to, I'm really familiar with ableism in higher education, just because I just left higher education, so that is obviously on my mind, Um, but college campuses are just (laughs) deeply inaccessible, both structurally and in the attitudes of um, 
of people making decisions around policy. Um, a lot of, I, I could list forever, but those are areas um, that when things like Governor Abbott's legislation on DEI and publicly funded college campuses, which for a host of other reasons is a gross, unjust um, way to apply policy to groups of people. Um, and a pretty shocking withdrawal of protection, but specifically for people with disabilities on college campuses. Um, and I know that there are conversations happening at Baylor, even though it's a private university because they're funded through um, state and federal grants. Um, so some of these policies apply to them too. Um, all of the disability, there's a disability cultural center that I know has been in the works at UT. Um, but even beyond that, just the bare minimum um, like student accommodation offices, which often act more as gatekeepers of access rather than um, student advocates, which is a whole other thing, um, are connected to this and affected by this DEI legislation that Governor Abbott is passing. And so it's not just um, students of color and queer students who are affected by it, but also disabled students. And it would be enough if it was any one of those groups individually, but it's broader and then people, um, I think, initially reacting to it, no. And so, um, yeah, there is plenty. Um, and there are a lot of um, people functioning as watchdogs in policy spaces. And so AAPD is honestly my recommendation for knowing um, policy at a state and federal level um, well and knowing how it affects people with disabilities. But it's an incredibly rich and researchable <laughs> um, field for people to dig into if they're interested wow fantastic yeah <laughs> thank you that was no seriously that that's so much um for people to work with as far as finding along whatever end of that spectrum or whatever you know there's there's so much variety and so many multifaceted ways that you put in there that i mean honestly like it, it sounds like just being a, a leftist and fighting for universal health care and, you know, affordable housing, you know, all that thing. Sounds like that is just, you know, it, it really rises all boats there, you know. So, uh, but, but yeah, even getting down to like the specificity of like how things happen in higher education and different things like that. I mean, that is that, that gives people so many different ways that they can be creative and process how they can jump in and, and yeah. get involved. Um, so I will say, sorry, oh, yeah, really go ahead, fast. please. Mm -hmm. Something that Maddie recommended to me when I was beginning my journey of like becoming more aware was Crip Camp. Uh, yeah, sorry it's... for making that noise on an audio only medium. Yeah, it's okay. please. <laughs> yeah, it's a Netflix, I think it's still on Netflix. It's a documentary just about like the disability rights movement and. I mean, it was so much history that, like, I had to memorize, literally, because I had to get a SPED certification for part of my teacher certification, but, I mean, it's obviously so different to watch it in documentary format and to, like, hear from the people who were there and to, like, watch the footage. Like, I don't know. It was very powerful and very good, um, so highly recommend. It's just, I don't know. Again, like, as much as we can make, I think, disability rights, like, visible, I think, that is probably the beginning of the work for a lot of people just because as an able-bodied person, like the world is made for me, mm. you know? And like, why would I ever think about yeah. it being made for me? Because that's just so like natural and normal. And I think that was 
like where my work first started and obviously, you know, still always learning, but I think that's an important note. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Um, as we pivot to, uh, to what, what I, I feel like I, um, always, uh, get invigorated about talking about, which is theology. Um, you know, when we think about the concept of the image of God, which, 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 which people miss often because the, you got, you really got to dig into the ancient roots of what was trying to be communicated. And there's a reason I'm doing that for us to have a healthy idea of how to modernize it. Um, but when, when it was said, I mean, you're talking about a overwhelmingly peasant world period. I mean, you talk about the 1%. I mean, they were, there were a lot of nations, a lot of everyday peasant people and like a king and as close as you were to the king or queen as much resources as you had and, and everyone that wasn't super close to them had nothing. And so in a society like that, using the language of the image of God and putting it in the context of royalty, of, of humanity being seen as, as universally royal and universally kings and queens, was a massive statement to make in Genesis 1 um, and a massive idea for the ancient Near East. Um, but the understanding of what it means to be the image of God constantly has to evolve and modernize itself. We have to start talking about it in regards to, yeah, those people of that certain color are also in the image of God. Those people from that nation are in the image of God. Um, those people with that gender are the image of God. And so having to make sure that we're very clear when we say um, humanity. And I mean, we've had to fight in this country to even to get on the same page about what a human is. Um, uh, I guess the three of us wouldn't have qualified, uh, two women and a black guy, right? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and so when we specifically think about the disabled community, um, what are ways uh, that we can kind of modernize the understanding of what it means to be in the image of God to ensure that we are not just describing an able-bodied person or someone who is, you know, neurotypical or, um, you know, any, any of the, the kind of uh, uh, quote-unquote normative um, ways that someone could exist in the American society? How can we... Uh, uh, expand our understanding of the image of God to ensure that we include uh, the disabled community. Either one of you jump in. <laughs> Nikki, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, I Nikki nodded no for the record. Just so everybody knows, I was like, Nikki, do you want to go first? <laughs> anyways, uh, anyways, back to me. Um, yeah, a really interesting conversation I had at the beginning of my, because I really have had a journey with disability and disability theology. I, like I said, I've been sick pretty much my whole conscious life, but didn't identify as disabled until my freshman year of college. Like I just had a really weak conception of disability as um, an intellectual disability and people using wheelchairs. And that was pretty much as far as I had thought into it. And so um, I felt like that was a foreign experience to mine um, and really had to have um, a, a long, long, months-long moment of realization 
Um, and during that experience, I had a conversation with um, a professor at Baylor named Dr. Jason Witt. Um, and he talked about how um, he, he really challenged me with this. And it's something I still think about. But um, I grew up in like very evangelical, um, like not too removed from Southern Baptist um, church spaces. And there was a lot of, I was, um, there were a couple of times where I went to like apologetics retreats or apologetics camps. Um, and we would talk a lot about the defense of the faith and um, something I heard in every single one of those contexts was um, we know that we are different from animals and made in the likeness of God because we are the only um, we're the only creatures who can rationalize our way to an understanding of God. And so in us being um, rational in us being um, intellectual in us being able to understand God with our minds, we are like in that way made in the image of God. And that is what sets us apart as creatures. And that just is not true of my, like of, of the people I know, I know a woman named Hope who's profoundly disabled and um, gauging intellectual ages as a medical practice is iffy and has roots that I'm not comfortable with. But um, the people who are profoundly disabled are often estimated around like, oh, like eight months intellectual age or a year intellectual age. And again, that's a practice that we could have our own conversation about. But um, what is communicated there is um, there's not the cognitive capabilities that I grew up knowing defined me as made in the image of God. And so if that's not true of all people created by God, it can fundamentally not be true. You know, like it's, I'm not more made in the image of God because I speak and think and write than, um, than any of the people I know who are profoundly disabled. And so that can't be a yardstick for like the Mago day, you know? Um, and then past that, um, there is just a really unchallenged, in my opinion, um, understanding of disability as a product of the fall, right? As um, a manifestation of sin in the world. Um, and the only framework that I um, had for understanding my body um, as a Christian up until the age of 19 was um, as a product of the fall. And, um, there's a lack of distinction between the two. And I don't know anything about biblical languages. So this was told to me by people who do <laughs> and who know more. Um, but there's two different words for flesh, right? There's somo and there's sarks and sarks is meant to be this mortal flesh that is used, um, as, I don't know if euphemism is the right word, but euphemistically in the scripture as like a signifier of, this product of the fall is like this this earthly flesh that like we 
won't take with us into heaven. Like it's, it's the sin nature. Right. And SOMO is just the physical body. And there's no distinction between those words in like an English translation of the text. And so if you don't look very hard, a lot of scripture seems to line up with the idea that like, um, our bodies, but definitely non-normative embodiment, um, ailment and sickness are a product of the fall. And then there's another distinction to be made between disability and pain because many people are disabled in a way that does not cause them any pain or physical suffering. Um, and you know, it's not my experience as someone with chronic pain, but, um, there are people who experience health in, um, a body with limb difference or, um, facial difference or, um, any number of conditions that aren't necessarily, don't necessarily cause suffering, um, on their own. And so, um, a huge shift for me, and I might be losing the thread a little bit because this is all <laughs> a little bit complicated, <laughs> not at but, all, not at all. um, the, for me, a huge shift came in, um, after internalizing my body as a product of sin and made in the image of God, but maybe not all the way, which is not something anyone ever articulated to me, but because of the cultural ableism read into the biblical text and because of the way we interpret verses like Psalm in Psalm 139, when it's, you are perfectly and wonderfully made. Like, so if I, I grew up in a body that was definitionally not perfect and I can list the things that were not as they should be in my body. And so the way I internalized that growing up in the church disabled was, okay, if this doesn't apply to me, like if the scripture about being perfectly and wonderfully made doesn't apply to me, what else doesn't apply? And so I really internalized that I could not have a full relationship with Christ um, in a way that was like untainted by my physical body. Um, and the relief that was promised to me, um, was always interpreted to mean like when I get to heaven, I won't be disabled anymore and I'll be fully like in my Imago Danis or whatever. And the evolution of my thought process to get here was supported by a lot of theologians and thinkers and, um, would take <laughs> a long time to explain, but I'll just say, like coming to a place where I instead see, um, I understand my body is created disabled on purpose by a God who loves me and understanding disability as a natural biodiversity in the earth. Um, that is what has restored my understanding of, of Imago Day as applying to disabled bodies. And um, I, I think there will be disability in heaven and I, I, love that. I love serving a God who is creative enough to make so many different kinds of bodies and to protect their particularity, um, in heaven, um, in a way that is unmarked by the pain of ableism in the earth. And, um, I love serving a God that doesn't need, um, to erase particularity, to reconcile, um, to reconcile, need a wholeness, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that has really been my journey with like, if Imago Day is true, if every person has inherent worth and dignity that is equal to everybody else's, like what is true about disability? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's um, it's interesting. And um, uh, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas, um, one of the books of the Apocrypha. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but but this, this, this is going to be a bad quote, though. It's going to be a bad quote, unfortunately, from, from this book. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there is a scene where I think it's Mary is, uh, it's hoped that she would be turned into a man so that she can go to heaven. Um, so, so here's what's interesting, right? Uh, God forbid, I'd rather go to hell if if men, if heaven's just full of men, just quite frankly. I was just going to say, very transgender. Right. We're we're here, ancient, you know, yeah, we're here for it. Not from, in context, it's a little, it's a little, it's a tougher read, Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but what's interesting is I remember the first time, you know, reading that and just being kind of appalled, like the idea of like, why would, um, you know, this woman need to have such a human particularity um, to exist within the kingdom of God? Um, and, and all of us would read that and, you know, especially with modern lenses immediately say, oh, that's absurd. Like that you can go into the kingdom as a, as a male or female. Um, but we already have, we still have these silly categories, right? Like we would say, um, so many fundamentalist evangelicals would say that you would not go into the kingdom, um, as a transgendered person. Um, that you that your experience in the kingdom would be that God would give you your uh, our original uh, sex assignment when you get to the kingdom. Um, I, I promise you that there was plenty of theology that I would not go to the kingdom as a black person. Um, and so, like, it, it, it's just so amazing when you say that, Maddie, uh, that 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 there will be disability in the kingdom because I'm like, of course there, and, and it's like. The first time I heard it, it was at a conference, and I, it, I, I, it was so much. It left me with so much mystery, and like, and quite frankly, fear and anxiety, and like, I don't know what to do with this, and like, of course, was able to like kind of push myself out of that and just more sit in the mystery of it. But like, and now when I think about, it, I'm like, no, like we've always tried to do this. We've always tried to make this particular way that you get to be acceptable in God's kingdom. And it's always sounded silly. And so why would it not sound silly with with disabled people? And, and we'll get to why in a second, because a lot of that has to do with the Gospels and, and people's, I would say, poor reading of it. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, 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 I love that you said that yesterday when we were talking on the phone, kind of getting ready for this episode. You mentioned that. And I was just like, yes, yes, yes. You have to say it on the episode. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and so I'm so great that that got I'm so grateful that that got said. Um, uh, I, I want to dig into the Gospels here in a second, but Nikki, I, I also wanted to give you a space to, to speak into the Imago Day and uh, disabilities. Cool. Formally redacting my Thomas comment. Uh, <laughs> before this, the only thing I knew about the Gospel of Thomas was um, one of my favorite professors. I did Christian scriptures with him, and he described the Gospel of Thomas as the book where Mary had a bazooka vagina and I just was like that I'm about never looked into it um but maybe I will now it's amazing. <laughs> love, shout out to Lynn Tatum love to imagine who will be googling the gospel of Thomas on that on, on the recommended effort here I'm gonna look into the SEO <laughs> oh, that's amazing um Yeah, I feel like you guys hit most of the big points. I think something that I always think about when it comes to, 
like image of God in heaven and like, I don't know, scripture reading in general is like, Maddie, you mentioned this, but I just want to harp on it. Like we as quote unquote rational beings are so fucking unaware, sorry, Mm. of like how much our cultural context impacts how we read things. Like we think, oh, like we're post like, you know, God, what the hell is the word? Oh, um, anyways, we're post enlightenment. Post enlightenment, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're post enlightenment, so we have these reasoning capabilities. We can think about everything. We can critically think whatever. But then we just like read scripture and think, yeah, only people who look and act and exist in the world like me will be in heaven. That makes sense. Um, and I think it's so true that like by this point, our like cultural Christianity has progressed to like understand that like oh, women and black people and you know, depending on who you're talking to, gay people will be in heaven. But then we still go back and think, well, yeah, everyone will be healed in heaven. And healing means, yeah. you know, being a quote-unquote normative being. And I remember that's a big conversation you and I had, um, Maddie, on our first date when we first met. And it was, <laughs> was just... Mutual friend Carly was, was like, I think you would love my funny friend, Nikki. So I'm, you, here's when you're going to meet her at the coffee shop. For coffee. And Carly went right. She was correct. She was right. <laughs> um, flash forward to both of you in my wedding. It was just meant to be. <laughs> but we talked about, like, the healing rhetoric and, like, I don't know. You had didn't talk about this. You don't have to. But, like, how many people have been, like, you're going to be healed. And, like, you're going to, you know, your body's going to be different. And then blah, blah, blah. And it's, like, I don't know. I think one like cultural understandings of like what a body is supposed to do are so deeply like capitalist mm. um and that's mm. disgusting to me yes, i think yes. socialism is for everyone mm-hmm. yes um, i'll so say that again that. socialism is for everyone let's go socialism is for everyone you can sound bite <laughs> that and send it to my dad I will take it. <laughs> um but yeah i think that and then i think like our cultural understandings of like knowledge are also very like Mm-hmm. fucked because i think we've talked about this and i've talked to our friend will tarnaski about this who also was a big barnabas guy you know yeah um and you know i mean there are just things that i will never genuinely never understand about god because i don't get to relate to god in a in the same way that an intellectually disabled person does like there's just a level of intimacy that's so different in a way that I'm missing out, you know? And so I think, like, we can't ever have, like, a full body of Christ or a full understanding of Christ if we're, like, excluding voices. And I think, like, we see that really easily with, like, liberation theology. Like, I think that is really, really important to my understanding of who God is. But if we didn't listen to black Christians, then I would have never, like, been able to grow in that way and, like, understand God in that different way. And so I think, you know, every time we're being exclusive, we're just, like, making the collective worse, which is obvious, but I think it really applies here. Um, and then the last thing I was thinking of just since I guess I'm the recommendations girl today is <laughs> Maddie, I think we've talked about Julian of Norwich before. I'm sure. Um, rings a bell for me. Rings very, bell. I mean, I just didn't know if we had had that conversation, but I'm very pro. I thought you were kidding when you said that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, very, very pro Julian. She's great. Um, as a woman mystic in general, but she talks a lot about like, I mean, you can probably explain way better than I, because I read her in great texts when I was a freshman and have just been a closet stand since then. But, um, she, a lot of her, like 
her revelations of divine love is all about how like Christ suffered throughout the crucifixion and she had all these like visions that she was suffering with him and a lot of like a lot of just like really interesting theological language about what does suffering mean and what is its purpose come from that and I think that's really relevant too maybe not to like Imago Dei I kind of went rogue but I think that's a big theme to, to hit on too just to toss that back to y'all but I yeah I just think it's really interesting that's all I um love well I love everything you said all of it with your perfect brain but um a big um something that I really enjoyed um and was blessed by when I was working at camp and I say working very loosely when I when I was at camp um it was the first time I had ever been around other disabled people like really when I think about it like in the context of disability like I it was the first time and it was the first time I had been around people with intellectual disabilities with people who had disabled bodies in different ways than mine um and I was so struck by exactly what you said. There are so many particular um, spiritual gifts that intersect with embodiment in a way that like not everybody has access to. And that's kind of like a very cryptic way to say, I think what I'm trying to say, but um, like there, everybody's particular experience of God is a gift to the community and is unlike everybody else's experience and so just as more of a side note because i think we're about to talk more about theology and church practice and things like that but it's not only that people with disabilities um miss out when our spiritual communities are exclusive and when our theologies are exclusive but it is also true that non-disabled people miss out um on so much knowledge of God and of the world and of each other when disabled experiences are completely absent from a community or are not, um, not ever centered. And so there are so many ways in which my knowing of God and also my understanding of the world, I didn't fully, um, understand. I was affirming of my queer friends, but I did not understand how theologically to reason to that point until I was steeped in disability theology, because there there really is a lot of overlap, I think, um, in a rich liberation theology around like a non-normative body and queer liberation theology. There, there's a lot there, but that's just one example. But there are so many ways where I was spiritually formed in a much wholer way by being a part of that community. And since not being since leaving that community um looking for those similar i go to a multicultural church now and i sought that out because of how um dynamic an experience it was to be around non-majority experiences i just said the word experience 18 times but <laughs> you're <were> so, <laughs> so right and it like they people with disabilities are necessary to the wholeness of the body of Christ now and in, in the eschaton, like in heaven, like it's, there's no way to be whole without disability. 100%. Yeah. (laughs) And, and 
so, I'm so sorry, Josh. I don't think you've seen it one time, but Maddie and I keep doing. No, I've seen it. I've, I've seen it every other. single time, and we did it. We did it. We did it in the pre-recording too, and so I'm I'm just like used to it. So so every time I see it, I'm just like, no, Josh Luckett doesn't think women are funny. No, let let the record show that I am uh, a sexist and I am misogynist in my humor. Um, But um, find it everywhere. Right, right, right. Can't get away from it. I'm so sorry, y'all came on a y'all came on a podcast called the Moral Minority Show, thinking that you it'd be a safe space, but it wasn't for you. Uh, we you know, had a man with the podcast, Mike. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's never safe. Um, but no, like I, I, I think the kind of the last like topic I, I want to hit on is obviously like um, uh, reading the Bible uh, or mm-hmm. specifically the Gospels um, mm-hmm. without an ableist lens, and us trying to figure out how to do that, like. And you know, give that information to my audience. It it was not. It is not something that it, it is the easiest thing in the world to read the Gospels with an ableist lens, because yeah. literally you're seeing Jesus step into circumstances and quote unquote fix people's bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll briefly say how I I I think we could probably reimagine what he's doing in those circumstances a little bit. And I mentioned this on the phone with you yesterday, Maddie, like, and then, and then after that, I of course want to hear from you guys. And, and of course you Maddie on like on how to kind of reframe and, 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 you know, reshift our paradigm on how we read the gospels when it comes to this issue. But I, I think what people don't understand is when Jesus was performing these miracles, in order for these uh, people that he's engaging with to have any agency, any mm-hmm. mobility, any family connection, any community within society, these um, these aspects of them had to be addressed. Like someone with leprosy literally would not see their family, would not be able to engage in any community. Um, people with no... With no um, people that were you know less able-bodied could not find day labor jobs could not get any kind of work get any kind of revenue or income coming into their family um i mean these jesus is literally putting these guys back in the economy putting these Mm -hmm. guys back into um honestly just some sort of life of decency especially when you're talking about you know uh you know leprosy which is a disease but um but yeah with with those circumstances, I, I, I think there was a society that was so unaccommodated to mm-hmm. any type of uh, physical disability, mental disability, that in order for Jesus to ingratiate them or engage them back into society, he was doing this. I, I do not believe personally that Jesus was communicating that this is the epitome of a person is that, you know, you're not blind or... Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're not you're not lame or you know you you don't have you you, you don't have this disability now you're fully human um it, 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 it and so and and there was something beautiful that you talked about yesterday and kind of like the questions jesus would ask and and what people respond i want you to get into that in a second but um but yeah i i, I just i i i think it, it's difficult now um through kind of just being I would say just trying to be a little bit more thoughtful about those engagements. It's difficult now to read those as 
oh, Jesus is just trying to fix them. Um, I, I, it's hard when you understand all the cultural context and the infrastructural issues going on to simplify it to that. And so that, that's kind of my take. And that's like, I've developed that in the last like two years. So, so recent, you know, <laughs> like, um, and so, uh, g- give me more insight. Um, give, give me more, um, things to think about when we think about the engagements that Jesus had. Um, with disabled people throughout the Gospels. Yeah. Um, Nikki, what is your... Now I'm podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki, like, what has been your impression of, like, they're usually called, like, the healing narratives, but, like, how... Like, obviously, you're a person who... um, like in our conversations has been exposed to a fair amount of like disability justice framework and like other places too. Um, but how has like, do you read those, the, the same you always have, like, how do you have, like, how do you reconcile them now? No, I think that similarly to Josh, that is something that has like vastly changed. I think, I know I'm absolutely sure I'm lifting this language from one of you two here. So like yell at me and tell me that I'm have white woman's disease. Um, (laughs) But I think like the reading of those now that I like have a frontal lobe um, and that I've listened and learned is more of like, I'm pretty sure Josh, you said this when we were talking about this episode is more of um, like, ah, I can't think of the word like taking a shot at like the society that like Mm -hmm. caused the need for the healing rather than like the point, the point was never the healing. I think Mm -hmm. the point was like, like Josh said, like, I'm going to, you know, help you to, you know, be able to like take care of yourself because no one else is going to fucking do it. Mm. Um, and I think this is kind of off topic, but it relates like, so that's something that I have struggled with and my like, reconstructing of like Christianity is like I've always kind of aligned with like the Judas the zealot the like you know why are you here Jesus and like you're not fixing things like that like once I got that context on who Judas was I was like dude fuck yeah I would do it too I'd be pissed as hell like (laughs) why are you here and we're still under Roman oppression why are you here and people are still not being taken care of why are you here and all these things are happening you know like that's just kind of my alignment so that's something that's really hard for me to read and like you know not that like (laughs) I'm gonna come at God and be like why haven't you fixed everything um but I think from a societal lens like why is why are we still so exclusive why Mm -hmm. you know have things not been made more accessible um but like that's coming from a girl who shares the personality type with Osama Bin Laden so to be expected you're insane (laughs) Um, but what I was, what I was going to say, but no, what, what I was going to say is like, well, you would be a psalmist, like, like in, in, in like, so instead of a psalm, you, you would be, you would be someone who's like, an psalmist. <laughs> and with that, uh, Maddie, you take over. <laughs> Yeah, I so obviously and Nikki kind of alluded to this and I kind of have to I can get there without 
walking the bridge of personal experience, but it's more fun too, I think. So, um, I grew up in like a pretty cessationalist environment spiritually. Like I, um, didn't, I don't think I knew until high school, like late high school, that there were still spiritual communities who were practicing like tongues and healing. Um, and I use healing as their word, like not, not mine. I think a more accurate way to talk about it and differentiate healing from like full restoration is curing. And so that's language that I'll probably use, but, um, I have had people lay hands on me. I've had a lot of people lay hands on me and I don't present as visibly disabled if I'm not using my cane. Um, and so, or like a sling or a brace or whatever, um, and so I, if I have experienced it, how much more have people who are always visibly disabled, um, and don't have any kind of passing privilege. Um, I, I, I know how often they experience it because I have friends and we talk about it, but, um, my experiences, those were always deeply, um, disenfranchising, incredibly unsettling. Um, I never articulated a desire for that kind of intervention. Um, and so it would usually happen. Um, one time I was in a group of people and they, we just like came upon, came upon the topic of my illness. And, um, then there were 12 different people laying hands on me or like if I am using my cane in the grocery store or, um, in, the hallway at my job, like there's, there's a deep level of almost objectification that happens where I'm reduced to a two dimensional, um, whatever they think disability is. And usually it's tragic. That is what I'm immediately reduced to. And so, um, I recognize that in the biblical narratives, like this lack of agency, um, and so much greater in ancient times, but I can identify it with it a little bit. And so, um, when I came to college and started to read like secular disability studies and disability liberation theology, um, and I just this relief of unpacking ableism and realizing like my God was nowhere in it. And that, um, I serve a God that wants liberation for me and that ultimately my healing is not like a cured body but like freedom from ableism and also from pain because I have (laughs) I have that going on but um I then came to the scripture and was like okay if I now know this to be true about God if I now know God to be um accessible and inclusive but also for like um my dignity then like what must be true like that also must be true about Jesus and so how have I been reading the scriptures wrong for my whole life and so there it's honestly the work of disabled theologians um a lot of disabled lay theologians um and there is a rich anti-ableist hermeneutical lens and you alluded to it Josh and I know in our conversation um you talking about um the the conversation that you, um, were a part of at that conference, like, and how, um, kind of radical that was at the time. But, um, the way that I, I say all that to say there are people with much more robust answers to this question. 
and I have the one that is personal to me, but I, I have it because other people are articulating it in such like beautiful ways. So I really implore people to go and seek that out. Um, but what is ultimately true about the healing narratives is they're about restoration, which is healing and not curing, which is fixing a, a body to normative agreement. Mm. Um, and so in interactions with sick and disabled people in the New Testament, um, Jesus almost always asks what they want. And so like in the story of Bartimaeus, like Jesus comes to Bartimaeus, knows his whole life, knows every desire, knows all of his experiences. He knows what Bartimaeus wants and he still asks Bartimaeus, what is it that you want? And Bartimaeus articulates to be healed and so Jesus could know that Bartimaeus's deepest desire was a different kind of body and have accomplished that without Bartimaeus. And there are plenty of people, especially in spiritual communities, who don't have um, the all-knowing, the all-knowing vibe of God and still feel confident enough to assume that that is what any disabled person would want and to act on it. And even... Jesus, who did know that that was the case, did not act in that way. And so the first restoration is of Bartimaeus to himself. He restores agency to Bartimaeus. And this is true of every disabled person he interacts with in the New Testament. But that restoration of agency, um, if, if it is so moving to imagine that now for myself, like how much more for um, people, especially women in the ancient world. Um, and then... The second, which you touched on, Josh, is um, that restoration to community, right? So, like, in the ancient times, there was no, um, it was such a, such a stringent, um, and it also, like, the stigma of disability in ancient times also comes from the way people were reading the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so that's even more to grapple with. It's not an easy answer to just be like, well, they got it wrong. It's like, okay, well, there's some stuff there that like, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to see how they would get that wrong. So what is true about the Old Testament, which is, there is still a rich hermeneutic for that, that I think is very liberating. But the second restoration of Bartimaeus, for example, is to his community, because now, like you were saying, Josh, he can work, he can have familial connections, he can belong. And so, um, and to do that in that time, he needed a well body. He needed a, a normative body to access that kind of community care and to access um, that level of safety and earning his own money and things like that. And so it's ultimately in the New Testament, I think, about restoration. And um, I think the antidote to that quick, easy um very common understanding of like, okay, every time God encounters disability in the Bible, he cures it to like non-disabled, to able-bodiedness, um, is to go back and to find all the places in Old and New Testament that that does not happen. There are plenty of instances of God in Old or New Testament um, interacting with um, somebody disabled, somebody um, in a different body and um, not curing it to normative body. And I don't think there's as many um, cases of that. I honestly can't think of one in instances of disease and um, 
in instances of illness and pain. So I think that's another, um, like I said earlier, making the distinction between disability as an experience and pain and illness and suffering as an experience is really important um, theologically and in secular disability work. But um, Josh and I talked about this last night, but the original language, again, as it has been explained to me, is like in the story of Zacchaeus, the original language around Zacchaeus makes it incredibly possible that Zacchaeus had a kind of dwarfism and that his being short of stature was um, a, a condition, not just an adjective, you know? Um, and Jesus dines with Zacchaeus. He heals his heart and restores him to the community. And it's never mentioned that he gets taller. Um, or like, I think the most direct in the old Testament, like when Jacob is wrestling with God, God disables Jacob, he touches his hip and Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. And, um, it comes up again in Hebrew 11 when Jacob is described as worshiping, leaning on his staff in old age. Um, and as someone who uses a cane, like, wow. and I love that. Wow. Um, Pretty badass. It's like, if, if God, clearly God saw that to be a fit way for Jacob to live. Clearly it did not impede Jacob's worship of the Lord. And clearly like the particularity of Jacob's body as shaped by the Lord, um, was significant and was intentional. And, um, there are lots of other instances in the Bible, um, like that, but those are like, like I never had the hermeneutic to read the story of Zacchaeus and imagine that maybe Zacchaeus had a different body, um, in a way that was not like mine, but was similar in that it was different. (laughs) Um, and that Jesus never saw, Zacchaeus never asked Jesus to cure him. And Jesus never took it upon himself to do that. Like that, to grow up reading it that way would have been very liberating for me. And to read it now is, is liberating for me. Mm-hmm. But um, it's such a tough, it's <laughs> another understatement. The Bible is complex and long. Right. And <laughs> right. There are so many people who have devoted their lives just to, the curing stories in one book or the healing narratives as a whole or to one story. And, um, I really encourage people to seek out disabled theologians instead of not disabled theologians, um, taking their most generous guess at the meaning of a text, because that is still valuable, but not in regards to disability in the same way a disabled person is going to, is going to offer insight, you know? Nikki, you're about to, you're about to say something, Nikki. I was just agreeing. Oh, I mean, there <laughs> was so much, yeah, there was so much gas there. Like, I just vigorously agreeing. Yeah. Yeah. Just monogreen. That's all this is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I mean, Maddie, I, I, I can't stress this enough, just how just like thoughtful and I mean, quite frankly, brilliant you are on this topic and, and just how much I've enjoyed just kind of legit just sitting at your feet in this conversation, but um yeah no just that idea of like god disabling jacob and Mm -hmm. and actually this was a turning point where jacob actually became significantly more intimate with Mm -hmm. with yahweh Mm -hmm. on 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 the back end of that uh, ironically um and then you even look at uh paul and and people you know debate about Mm -hmm. the thorn in his flesh and 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 what what's intriguing there is one 
Paul does mention um, at one point, or at least hint at potentially like some sort of disability with his eyes that he was developing of some sort. Um, and so people immediately interpret the thorn in his flesh as, you know, him struggling with that, with that ailment of his eyes. And in the context of the thorn in the flesh that he talks about in, I think it's 2 Corinthians, it sounds a little bit more like the church enemies that he's dealing mm-hmm. with. And yeah. actually, Paul, who has the ability to heal, mm-hmm. who heals all throughout uh, uh, a lot of the book of Acts, does not heal whatever um, physical ailment that he's possibly hinting at in Galatians. Um, and yeah. so I, I, I'm just like, it, it, like you know, for the idea of, uh, I think it's an overly simplistic and reductionist reading of scripture to see the fairy tale ending as, in your words, and I love the distinction you made earlier, as cured bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's just not. In fact, um, Jesus... Um, gains a physical uh uh you know right he gets his own uh uh jacob uh uh you know d- disablement Same. in having the you know uh, the the you know the um the thorn in his actual flesh like the actual spear in his flesh yeah. and the hole in his side and the and the holes <laughs> in his hands and feet and he keeps those yes. in the kingdom yeah and and As, so it's not Scars. Right, and so like on its face, it it is a flat out ridiculous thing to believe yes. that going into the kingdom means that you have to have a quote unquote cured and quote unquote whole body when your very savior is going to keep uh, the holes in his feet and side and hands. Yes, I um one of the most brilliant the the seminal work of. And I don't know if I'm using. <laughs> am I using chat? Am I using that word right? <laughs> the, I'm not here to correct you. The, right. the first, the opening parlay of disability theology is a book, and you're right to laugh when I say parlay. Sorry. <laughs> it was unexpected. <laughs> I just immediately, uh, unfortunately, heard Johnny Depp say it because of oh, pirates. No, not for me, thanks. Anyways. Um, is this brilliant book by um, a theologian named Nancy Island, And it was actually her master's thesis published into a book. And it's more brilliant than anything I will ever write or maybe read again. Um, so crazy that it was a master's thesis, but it's called The Disabled God. And in it, she um, really sets the bounds of like early disability theology. It's considered like the, there like Moltmann, was writing about it before, um, and so was, I don't know why I can't remember his name, the bioethicist at Duke. Um, nope, it's gone. So, the, But it was the first like broad um, work and incredibly important, and also very short, I think very accessible, a very hearty recommendation from me. Uh, but in The Disabled God, Nancy talks about... Um, her the last chapter is of her revelation of god and this is where i might lose some people which is completely fine with me um but her revelation of god um and when i read this in a class my sophomore year of college some people took very hearty objection to this part of the text and my professor um distinguished in a way i will always appreciate she said a revelation of god is not necessarily like a theory 
it's not necessarily an idea somebody is explaining to you. They're telling you how God was revealed to them, and you can't really pick that apart. Like, mm-hmm. you can reject it, and that's fine, and you you are allowed to do that, but mm-hmm. it's not it's not necessarily, like, a thesis. Like, it's a revelation. And so um, in the last chapter of the book, God is revealed to Nancy Island as being a man in a sit-puff wheelchair, so, like, one of the wheelchairs that is driven by a tube in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is how God is revealed to her. And in the text, which I think is very beautiful. Um, and similarly in the rest of the text, um, she unpacks this idea of Christ as disabled, like after the resurrection. Um, and I think at the very least, you have to talk about the wounds and you have to talk. And that obviously presses up against how do people understand disability? They have a narrow definition of it, like I grew up with, where it's intellectual disability and wheelchairs. Like, they won't look at Christ and say disabled. But if it's a non-normative body, I think it's very easy to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it doesn't mean that he is not all-powerful like he is all powerful and also disabled and um she takes it further in a way that is you know I can't defend to anybody it's just like very personally encouraging to me um and she talks about the pain of those wounds and wonders if Christ like remained with the pain of his wounds um and so a a pretty radical turn of the text towards the end but you're so right to identify that as another instance where divinity is dwelling with disability and is not necessarily like transforming it into anything, anything normative, anything able. And I think that is really beautiful. If I, if I can just piggyback off that, cause I know that you were trying to preface and like, Oh, this is, I know I may lose people here. It's radical. You know, like <laughs> the whole point of him keeping the hand, the holes in his hands and feet inside is a, is to remember the pain. Yeah. So, yeah. I, like, like the whole point was so people could see this is what I endeared to mm-hmm. to reconcile us and to harmonize the breach that was between us, between himself and humanity. And so it's like, even if Jesus doesn't, quote unquote, feel the pain, he mm-hmm. obviously is constantly showing a reminder of it, like a, a yeah. perpetual reminder of it. And, and so, he did that one time feel the pain, which is what mm-hmm. is ultimately significant. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, if, if, if God can reveal himself on a cross, then we should be able to accept the interpretation of someone saying that he revealed himself to them in a wheelchair. I'm so sorry. I think, think, yeah, I think that's just, I think that's just true. Um, and, 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 and I think it's important when marginalized groups say God is blank, God is queer, God is black. Like I'm, I, I know God wasn't ethnically or or as a as a racial category black that that is never i've never been confused about what jesus ethnicity is he he has an entire book uh around his nationality so that's never been confusing for me the language that you know james cone and so many brilliant um, theologians and thinkers were trying to communicate was god is like you you know just like your your people are being lynched um jesus was lynched um, just like your people were under, uh, you know, white supremacy, Jesus was under Roman supremacy. Like, and so like every community should be able to look at God and say, yeah, God is trans. God knows what it's like 
um, to, to be chased down by an angry mob. You know, when Jesus got done talking in the synagogue and, and an angry group of people attacked, like God knows what it's like to say something that's that, that radically breaks up a binary and has people charge and want to throw you off the hill. So, so, God, mm-hmm. so God is all of those things because they, um, because they, because they are powerful, but, but because they are powerful, because God is powerful, mm-hmm. then they can be all the things that mm-hmm. everyone is experiencing. And so I, I just wanted to, I know it does sound radical, but it's like, it, yeah, everything is going to sound radical when you've essentially grown up in a, 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 a fundamentalist right wing idea of Christianity. Anything to the left of you is going to sound radical. So just yeah. come on a journey. Come on a journey as far as God wants to take you and, and, and start to hear those other things. Um, any any kind of any kind of last thoughts as we as we kind of wrap up from either of you two uh, brilliant and amazing women? I have to say that because I've said sexist things. Wow. <laughs> so I have to like, yeah. right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's all about balance. Yin, yin, yin and yang. You know, that's, yeah. that's what this is. <laughs> mm, I'm staring at this Julian of Norwich quote on my screen. So true. That's so true. I so I could read that. You could bust it out. Because I out. feel she speaks better than I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was just looking it up briefly just to see just to see what I could find. And I forgot that this quote existed. And then I read it. And I was like, oh, no. Relevant to what we were just talking about. Um. So she says, our true mother, Jesus, he who is all love, bears us into joy and eternal life. He sustains us within himself in love and was in labor for the full time until he suffered the sharpest pangs and the most grievous suffering that ever were or shall be. And at the last he died. Even this could not fully satisfy his marvelous love and that he showed in these high surpassing words of love. If I could suffer more, I would suffer more. So I just think she kind of slayed. Um, yeah. Goodness, yeah. And <laughs> here's my act. Yeah, she did. Yeah, I don't know. Um, can't can't recommend that more highly. Like as I don't know, thinking about like the suffering of Jesus, thinking about like Jesus as a mother, like just she kind of hits on a lot of major things. Yeah. That if people listen to women, maybe we would be better off. Mm. But. Um, I don't know. I think my final thought is that heaven probably is just going to have a lot of ramps. Hmm. And like, it'll be really cool. It'll be socialist and a lot of ramps. Let's go. <laughs> socialist and a lot of ramps. Bar. That's a great, that's a great final thought. <laughs> Maddie, anything? Oh, um, I mean, I have, if anybody is interested in a list of, disabled theologians and speakers and writers who I really respect. Um, I can always, Josh, give that to you mm-hmm. for some kind of episode description situation mm-hmm. or if people mm-hmm. reach out to me, um, I am happy to give that to them. Um, I would just say, mm, if anybody is listening to this in their different body, um, I... Man, it was so important to me and such a relief. Like I could breathe for the first time in my entire life when I came upon the idea that God had nothing to change in my body um, apart from pain and disease. Um, And I am so grateful to belong to the disability community and so grateful for 
um, the people who have used their bodies in creative protest and who have explored the face of God in ways um, that I wouldn't have been able to find for myself. And if anyone is listening to this in their different body, um, I just pray that you um, can move through the noise and be found by the God who loves you in your body and in your mind. Um, And I pray that you get to enjoy um, the particularity of your body um, and its resilience and um, the beauty of your experience. And I pray that you find communities that make space for that. Um, And yeah. Thank you so much. I think that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I, I can't imagine what it means for people to hear stuff like that. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for saying that. Um, at, as we close, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. I am indebted um, to my experience uh, about five years ago, uh, well, seven years ago now, um, working at what was called Camp Blessing, what is now called uh, Beloved and Beyond. Um, and mm-hmm. so many of the friends who either worked with me there or um, friends who uh, have this within their family, whether it's their, their child or themselves or whatever. And so I'm so indebted to any, any, anything I said that was right is either because of the conversation I had with Maddie yesterday or their influence. Um, and so just wanted to make sure that I, that I made that very clear because I know that they're going to be, um, that they're going to, that pro- probably going to listen to this episode or at least be aware of its existence. And I want to make sure that that I show that I'm indebted to them for even sounding any bit of competent on this on this subject and and um, and, and Nikki, thank you so much for for joining us for your third straight episode and thank you so much for um, uh, one your your wisdom that you bring to any conversation. I just my dear friend, I think you just are so insightful and enlightening to be around, but. Um, but thank you also so much for, uh, for, you know, get setting up this situation with Maddie. I am so proud of this episode. I think it is so, um, affirming, dignifying, informative, fun, everything. And so just absolutely loved it. Loved our time. Um, uh, I am going to put, um, some of your, um, uh, uh, theologians and, and maybe resources in, in the description, um, it'll probably be slowly over time as I keep compiling and adding stuff. But, um, but yeah, outside of that, what are, what are some ways that if, if anyone wanted to continue to grow in this conversation, particularly from interacting with you, how could they do that? Whether it's through social media or, or any other way that you would like for people to continue to engage with your thoughts and your work. And, and Nikki is ready, very ready for your answer. <laughs> really, it's so tough to be Nikki and I, the most expressive <laughs> earth on an audio filming medium and we've just we yeah we've been very brave is what i'm trying to say yeah and nikki made a funny face um yeah well i i really appreciate that and i really appreciate this conversation and y'all and this space it just is incredibly meaningful to me um and i also want to say that i you know disability is not a monolith and there are plenty of disabled people Um, who love God and know God and feel differently about their bodies. And I do want to say that. Um, And this is what has been freeing and has been true 
um, in my life, and I do I do want to honor the complexity of that. And I know that disability is not always something that feels um, like a point of pride. Um, and I, yeah, there's there are many experiences, and I want to just say that before we leave. But yeah, I like Nikki said, since I am a post grad white woman, I have a sub shack now, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it true. is called. I don't, I don't get grades anymore, so I had to do something. It's so true. Um, it's called Funny Body, um, and I don't I don't know how the Substack links. I don't know if it's substack.com slash funnybody or if it's funnybody.substack.com. Nikki knows. I got uh, If I write a book when I'm 80, I want that to be the title, so everybody hands off. Everybody hands off the body unless you're going to it. Um, Right now, it's just a collection of things that I've written um, over the last couple years. I hope I'm going to start adding to it soon. Um, And then I loosely post about disability stuff on my personal Instagram, which is maddie, M-A-D-I dot snow, S-N-O-W. And I, from there, you can get to my um, fiber art, which obviously comes from a perspective disability and chronic pain um, in response to that pain with a lot of maximalism and tinsel and bright colors so if anybody's into that um but yeah what's it called confetti weaves if anybody's interested (laughs) confetti.weaves so good um thank you nikki um i yeah i'm in kind of a season of not doing much um for disabled reasons but that is what i'm up to i would say mostly the substack nice well um this was absolutely fantastic um thank you guys uh so much for for joining audience thank you so much for tuning in hopefully i I, well i know it was informative whether you like the information or not is is up to you but (laughs) this was this is like like definition our disabled god right exactly (laughs) exactly bar right here at the end well done but um yeah, this was this was definitionally informative, and uh, and so I, I hope that it was encouraging more than anything else. And so, uh, audience, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Um, these conversations bring forth all type of thoughts, questions, ideas, conversations. And so, if you'd like to continue, of course, hit me up on Instagram, hit Nikki up on Instagram, hit Kennedy up on Instagram, hit Maddie up on Instagram, or uh, you could also email me at. Uh, the moral minority at gmail.com and we can continue these conversations and so thank you so much for joining us um can't wait to have more fun conversations like this in the future and have a good one